as we prepare for chapter 5, I did want to remind us of some of the things we've seen in chapters 1 through 4. So it starts out in chapter 1, and this will be brief. The book of Ephesians is divided into two components. The first three chapters has to do with the gospel story, what God has done for us. And chapters 4 through 6 have to do with our story, what our response to what God has done should be. And we see that that is, that is generally the case. I, I, later on, I'll, I think there's a little bit more to it than that. But that's a very effective partitioning of the book. So in chapters 1, I remember reading Ephesians years ago, studying Ephesians with the Bible study years ago, and just being blown away by what we see at the beginning, the very beginning of the book. All of these descriptions of what God has done in the heavenly places, things that that I've never seen with my own eyes, things that uh, I have to believe on faith, and that have everything to do with my Christian identity today, right here, right now, even though I'm standing in front of you, a a 51-year-old man, and and, uh, this stage of my life, and the thing, the specific things in my life that are happening, the problems and the challenges and the blessings and the you know, raising kids and all these things. But, but, but I have to believe that there's another component to my life and to my identity that I don't see, that I can't see at this point in, in, in time, because the Word of God tells me these things. It tells me in one three, for example, that God has blessed me with every and us, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, uh, that we've been adopted as sons, verse 5, that we've been uh, gotten, uh, we've gotten forgive, forgiveness, we have redemption, uh, we have all of these amazing things. It's just a smorgasbord, a, a fountain of blessing that comes from the Lord that starts this book out, and it's all directed at us. It all originates with Him. We don't have much, really, to do with it, to do about it, other than to respond to it and to remember it. And I think that's really, really important that we consider that. We didn't, we didn't deserve the things that we've gotten from the Lord. And yet, I think God is so rich, so wealthy beyond compare, that it pleases the Lord to give us these things, to just douse us with these blessings. And so, one of the things, I think the main thing to take away from chapter 1 is this reality that there is a, there is a portion of our identity, the actual bat foundation of our identity, that is in the heavenly places, and it's important that we get that because we don't live there at this point physically. We live here as pilgrims, and the pilgrim life is a difficult life and a challenging life. And yet, we always have this reality, this truth to come back to, that God has, in his sovereignty, he has seated us in the heavenly places. And that, that verse is actually in 120. Now, as a reminder... To help us remember what he's done, he's given us, in verse 113, he's given us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is his very presence, his very nature. That's God himself living inside of us, reminding us of these truths as we go through our lives. So, praise the Lord for chapter 1. Chapter 2 continues in the same vein, talking about God's mercy to us, talking about the fact that we have been made alive in Christ. And I'm going to go, in a, in a minute, I'm just going to share a few verses in Ephesians that I think are, are worth sharing um, that, that speak to various aspects of the book. But chapter 2 is just a continuation, not only what God has done for us, uh, but what that means to us, what that means to us in the here and now, the, the many manifold ways that we've been blessed through us, who Jesus is, what his blood has meant to us, who Christ is today, our cornerstone, 
in verse 3, chapter 3, I'm sorry, we, 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 this blessing, this blessedness that, that we're reading about, the, the gospel, our salvation, these heavenly blessings, our, our position in the heavens, uh, what this means with so all of these things begin to, in chapter 3, codify, and, and we're, we're, we're told about the church and how he, he brings us together in the body. I'm, I'm glad that the Lord put us in the, the body of Christ, not some other hierarchy, not some other sort of uh, division, some other uh, um, sort of a, a, a corporate structure. There's not a, the structure of the church is Jesus the head and us the body, and there is really no other, no other uh, um, partition in it, so to speak. We all need one another. And we're told in, in, in chapter 3, what the purpose of the church is. And we'll, we'll talk about that in just a minute. So we move through. In chapter 4, and on your placemat you can see, there's a transition. And it's, you take the first three chapters, all these things the Lord has done, all these things that Jesus Christ has done for us, what that means to us. And now in chapter 4, there's a transition, and we're encouraged to consider how we walk that out, what our response should be. And we're going to see that there in, in, in 5, when we get to 5 in just a moment, we're going to see that we're told three different times to walk in a particular way. And this walking is, is analogous to us living our lives. So that you know, we're faced with this, with this, um, this duality of, of our identity is in Christ. I, I no longer live. It is Christ who lives in me. I have been crucified with Christ. And he now lives through me and in me. And that's a reality. And the, on the other side, there's these, there are these, these uh, admonitions to walk in certain ways. And do certain things, and I think you know one thing that's really important for us to take away from from this sort of duality is the fact that the only way we can do the things that God has asked us to do in the second half of Ephesians walk in in unity, walk in humility, love one another, walk in the, all these things. The only way we can do those is if we do them as knowing full well that Christ is actually the one doing them in us. We get no credit. It's all the glory, all the credit goes to him. It's not our power, it's not our strength that allows us to do these things. We don't, you know, and he gets all the power and he gets all, all the glory and we get none of it. But in, in chapter 4, we do have this, uh, this transition that starts to speak to us about how we are to live. We're told in the middle of chapter 4 that some of the, some of the offices in the church, so there is a structure to it. And, and there's a purpose to that structure. And chapter 4 kind of rounds out with this, uh, these instructions of, of just sort of recognizing the newness of life that we, that we have been given. Get putting off the old, putting on the new, coming together as one new man. So I love Ephesians as we get ready for chapter 5. I, I love Ephesians, how it flows together as one uh, just beautiful piece. It's one of my favorite books, if not my very favorite book, I liken the book of Ephesians to, uh, to like a double shot of espresso at Starbucks or something. It's, it's, it's all good, but Ephesians gives us an extra, it seems, just an extra punch. It's like walking through uh, an orchard and every piece of fruit is, is ripe and can be plucked and applied to your life. So I've got a number of verses in my life, and I've been a believer now for 29 years this November, and I'm just, as I sat here and I just read through Ephesians over and over again, it's, a, it's just such a great love letter. I realized there are so many verses in this book 
that are powerful. They can stand alone and answer a lot of questions. So the first one is chapter 113. I'm just going to read a few of them. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. I, I read that verse. The first time I read that verse, Here's the image I got, and, and uh, I, I, will, I will confess that anyone that, that sees my Facebook page knows uh, I've got a big picture of my youngest son holding a big snake that he caught a couple of days ago. I've always loved animals and loved snakes and, and reptiles and these things. And when I read this verse, I thought about a, a pet store because I, I go into pet stores with my kids every chance I get. And every now and then, I'll go down to the reptile section, and I'll see this beautiful iguana and it'll have something on the cage that says, uh, this, guy, this guy's been purchased already. He's purchased by John Doe. John Doe's going to come back next Wednesday to pick him up. So, and when I, I remember there's, a, there's almost a disappointment when I see that kind of sticker on a pet store aquarium because it tells me I'm looking at this thing, but it's not for sale. It belongs to somebody else. And this is, you know, we can apply that idea. It's not a very good picture, I guess, but we can apply that idea to our lives here on this earth. We have been purchased, completely purchased. We're paid for. uh, And we have, uh, right now, we have nothing but to wait for the Lord to come back and get this purchased possession, you and I. And this is good news. And yet, uh, not only can we read that, but we we can testify about that because the Holy Spirit reminds us of those things. He didn't just you know, say it. He, he invested in us. He gave us his very self to remind us of these things. So we have this great uh, hope awaiting us. Great verse. There's two one, another one of my very favorite verses. And you, it says, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. I go to that verse all the time, especially when I'm talking to somebody who doesn't think that they're dead. Do you remember Adam and Eve in the garden? God said, if you eat of this tree, the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. And they ate of it but they didn't die. And so we're faced with this dilemma. Well, did God not mean what he said? Or, or is there another kind of death that, that is possible that doesn't involve your heart stopping beating? Because there's a lot of dead people walking around the earth right now. They're very dead. And yet their hearts are strong. They're breaking world records. They're Olympians. They're brilliant. They're solving uh, mysteries of the universe. They're, they're, they're orbiting earth and space stations maybe. Or, they're brilliant. Very much alive physically. But spiritually dead. I believe that when Adam uh, ate the fruit in the garden, that the death he died was a spiritual death. And because of that death, from that moment on, every single person born that has, uh, as the, uh, in the line of Adam, which is all of us, have inherited that same death. And so we have this principle of sin that we inherit that causes us to be born dead spiritually. And that was my testimony, and, if, uh, and, uh, and it's your testimony too. And yet here he says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses. One of my favorite verses. And when you have someone who's not a believer sitting across the table from you, and you have this conversation that says, do you believe that you're dead? Well, no, I don't believe. Well, the Bible says that you are. So let's talk about ways to be dead that don't involve your heart stopping. And that's a great, uh, it's just a great verse. A great verse. Some famous verses, 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Awesome. 
So we, we know that verse, pretty famous, pretty popular verse. The very next verse, how easy is this? You ever wonder what's, your, what's, your, what's the meaning of your life? Why are you here? What are you supposed to be doing? I know, I know some of us probably uh, uh, are looking for what, what am I, how do I contribute? What am I supposed to do? What is the meaning of my life? Ephesians 2.10, very succinctly, very straightforwardly tells us, answers the question. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I don't know what those good works are for you, or you know, we're all different. But I know this, that in Matthew 25, when Jesus has uh, uh, all of humanity before him and divides them into two groups, the sheep and the goats, we know the story. And he says to the sheep, come in, dine with me, stay with me, welcome to heaven. That's the picture. And he goes on and he gives them, let me just, uh, bear with me for a second, Matthew 25, let me just read a couple of pieces from it, because it applies to this section of Scripture. So when the Son of Man, so this is Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, and he will sit on the throne of his glory, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is obviously speaking of heaven. This is the consummation of all things. This is, this is what we're waiting for, this moment in time. This is, why we're re- this is why the Lord has given us his Holy Spirit, waiting for this, that he's come back for the purchased possession. And here they are, standing before him, We'll be with him one day. But look, this is curious. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. So he sees, so the Lord lists these things, these good works, and each of those are good works that these people did. And because they did these works, we might say because they did these works, they got in. So the way to get into heaven is to do good works. Now, that would be to flip the truth. That's not the way we get into heaven. We're saved by grace. We just read this. So we can reconcile these two truths. These people did good works. We're going to see the goats also thought that they were doing good works. But look, then 37, then the righteous, that's us, right? The righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? and feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink. When did we see you? So they're looking, they're saying, sometimes we think that in order to do good things for the Lord, they have to do, be these majestic things, these public things, these, these things seen by a lot of other people. This picture is a picture of a people that are all about doing good works in little ways, and they're so clueless about the eternal value of these works that they didn't even recognize that they were doing they're just doing it. They said, when did, when did we see you doing this? And what does Jesus say? Assuredly, I said to you, verse 40, that as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So these good works that we've been created uh, to walk in, they can be minuscule. I believe that this is true. And, they, they, and, and we can't fall into this competitive mindset that I've got to do more. I, I mean, I, we should be zealous, I believe. I've got to do more. I've got to get recognition. I've got to be publicly seen doing good works. No, 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 no. The only reason we get credit in Matthew 25 for the good works was because we were, we were dead. It was Christ doing those works. Christ gets the glory for that. We don't get the glory for that because the goats, 
He says the same thing. And they say, well, we didn't. He says, I, didn't even, I never knew you. So when we, when we become Christians, we get this identity. And the identity is not our own identity. It's the identity of Christ. Christ lives in us. We're out of the way. And so from that point forward, I believe this. The good works that I do, whatever they are, however big, however small, however secret, however public, whatever they are, God gets all the credit for that good work. Because I do it in his name. I can't help but do it in his name. Even, to, even if I don't feel like doing it, and I do it, I'm, I think I'm doing it in his name still. Because I'm his. And he's, the life I live now, I, I, it's Christ living in me. I'm, I'm, I've been crucified with Christ. He lives through me now. So, next time you find somebody that says, mm, I don't know what my life really is all about. There it is, right there. Flipping over to three, just a little bit. Some of us, maybe, wonder, you know, why we come to church all the time, what the purpose of the church is. Here it is, 310, one of my favorite verses again. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. So somehow, this body, this local body, this local group of, of the church, this local assembly of the church, and the church universal, the design, God's design and purpose for this church, is his church, it's his church, is that the manifold, now manifold, I love that word, and I, and I know that word only because I, my first vehicle was a 1973 Jeep. And, uh, and it was a piece of garbage, and I loved it, and I'm sad I got rid of it. Uh, it was a three-speed. It was a straight six. I had a rag top. It was awesome. I just, oh, I drive a minivan. But that's okay. I love my minivan too. Don't I, honey? I do. Yes. But the exhaust manifold broke, cracked on this, uh, on this you mechanics. I'm not a mechanic. It's the only engine I could ever work on was this very easy straight six engine. But I, I learned what an exhaust manifold was. That took, that took you know, one source and spread it out into, into other sources. I think an exhaust manifold takes the exhaust from each cylinder and puts it into one, but it goes the other way too. Some manifolds take one source and put it out into many different directions. And so the manifold wisdom of God is an all-encompassing description of, of every aspect of the wisdom of God. And you and I, as members of the church... Part of the purpose of you and I being here and now and being part of the church is that we somehow, some way, are making known not just to one another and not just to the world around us, but to principalities and powers in heavenly places, the manifold wisdom of God. Why do we come to church? Why are we, why are we faithful and dedicated to church? Even maybe we don't want to go to church sometimes. Uh, something that we're doing, and I don't understand it all any more than I understand that now I'm seated Right this very second, I'm seated in the heavenly place with Christ. I don't understand that. At the same time, when I can be sitting here right now going, you know what? The music's a little loud. Or, you know what? That preacher's not very good. Or, you know what? I, I, it's, it's, you know, the lighting's wrong. Or, I, I got enough, you know, I'm, I'm like, my, my mind and heart is not in it. Still, I think gathering together like this has a part to play in declaring Jesus Christ to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. So, Ephesians 3.10, one of my favorite verses. Moving over to 4.11, another one of my uh, favorite sections of the Scripture. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists. Warren brought us through that part this past Wednesday night. But we're talking about the offices of the church. And, and so I want to make sure that we, that we know 
that we kind of see this pattern happening. This is what God has done, this large, awesome gospel, first three chapters of, of Ephesians, and then we start getting into this, what do we do with this? How should we respond to these things? What is our responsibility? I've heard some people say that from time to time. What is our responsibility? Last verse, and then we'll be in chapter 5. Uh, four, four, uh, 429. Well, I'm sorry. Let me back up. One before that. 416. One of my favorite verses. From whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. This is a great picture that no matter where you are in the body of Christ, no matter what you're doing, it, it is supplying. It, you're, you are a joint of supply in God's economy. You know, there's this thing. Um, there's, this, uh, there's this thing. There's this, this uh, idea in psychology, this uh, phenomenon, if you will, in psychology called the diffusion of responsibility. Diffusion of responsibility. Here's what it looks like. So, uh, and they've done plenty of, of, of experiments to this. So, so you're standing at a street corner with 20 people at a stop sign, and some guy gets hit by a car, he's laying in the middle of the road. If there are 20 people standing there, it is actually less likely that someone's going to go help that guy than if there's one person standing there. Because the, the mentality is that everyone is kind of looking at one another, waiting for somebody else to do something, and they've done experiment after experiment after experiment on this phenomenon, and what they find is universally... When there's a group together and they're called upon to do something, particularly something urgent, fewer people, even in a group, will do it than, than if there's just one or a smaller group. The bigger the group, the less likely somebody's going to do something. And I, and I fear sometimes that that principle can sneak into the church, that there's a diffusion of responsibility, that the, that the real service is about the pastor or about the church leaders, or about the Sunday school teachers or whomever it is, the, the people that feel comfortable, you know, in public doing things. But I'm, I, I think that's the wrong way to look at it. I think what really makes the Lord smile is when we serve him in ways that no one else will ever see because he is our father who sees in secret. And he, and he, that's what he says. And so you are a joint of supply in this local body and in the church universal. I don't know exactly what you're supplying or what God's will for you is to what, what, what you're doing, how you're doing it. But I want to encourage you, if you feel, as I have, I have felt myself from time to time, clueless about what I'm supposed to be doing here. How, where, where am I, what am I supposed to do? I don't know. Uh, what needs doing? Well, somebody else is doing the lights, and I, I can't do some of the things. But, but my encouragement to you, look around, look around you here, and, and do a good work. It starts, it's easy. It's, it's simple. Do a good work. Say a kind word. Ephesians 4.29, which is what we're going to read. One of my favorite verses, 4.29, says this, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but only what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. It's a great word. Do you know that the word for, uh, the word that we that we, the, the root word of the word that we, we get, the word communicate, is also the root word of, of the word that we use to get the word community. And so in a very real sense, 
I think that the words that we speak to one another in this body of Christ and in the world as well, to those outside the church, but I think the words that we speak to each other have great value. And the scripture is very clear about, you know, not complaining, do everything with thanksgiving, don't, don't backbite, don't be, you know, Galatians 5.15, if you backbite, you're going to devour one another. It's what we say is really, really important. How we live is really, really important. You know, I think, I think uh, and that's what we're going to see in chapter 5. And so, so let's move over to chapter 5 here before I, ran, I could ramble on all day, and I'm sorry. But chapter 5, we're going to read uh, the first uh, 21 verses. And what we're going to see in these verses, I'm going to forewarn you, what we're going to see in these verses, to see if you can find them, we're going to th- see three different ways that God has told us to walk, three different ways in which we're supposed to walk out this life. And as we, as we walk out this life, my presupposition is that we can't do any of those things unless we remember and we hold on to the fact and believe in faith that the only way we can do what we're about to read is to allow God to do it through us. 5.1. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. I love that verse. I mean, just stuff. I just love that verse because, uh, you know, there's a, there's, imitation is a, is a form of flattery. You know this, right? My dad was a, was a firefighter in New York, and he used to keep his big, uh, his big firefighter boots next to the bed, and I remember putting his firefighter boots on. He was in the Navy. I remember putting his Navy hat on. I remember climbing on the fire truck. He'd take me to the station every now and then. And I remember thinking, I know a little bit about this fire truck stuff. Because my dad's a fireman. Well, we know a little bit about imitating God. We don't have to do it from false pretense. We don't have to do it from pride. And we don't have to do it you know, in a hypocritical way. We know a little bit about imitating God because he lives inside of us. And we know him. And so we can, and I believe we should be imitating God. I don't think that's a, that's not to say, that's not to say, be an actor, that means do your best to do what Jesus would do. Be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. So he draws this distinction, these first seven verses, he draws a distinction between the us and the them. And there's some context, I think, in there. You can go back and read in Ephesians, in Acts chapter 19, the Ephesian church came along, and it was, it was, there was a, it was a messy group of people. They were worshiping this false goddess, Diana. There, was, there were riots and things. It's really interesting to read. And so there is a part here, I think, that's a context for, for the Ephesians and their specific set of circumstances. There was actually a, a riot of the silversmiths. You remember this story? Uh, the silversmiths that would make these false idols to Diana. And Paul comes along, preaches the gospel. Priscilla and Aquila are there even before him. And, and people are saved. And, and the, so the silversmith union, so to speak, gets together like, this guy is ruining. We don't care about the religious part. We're losing our livelihood. And everybody's fired up at Paul. They want to kill him. And so maybe that's part of why he's, he focuses in here on idolatry and covetousness. But, but it certainly applies to us as well. But the thing to take away is 
there's a difference between us and them, between believers and unbelievers, and, and we're told here that we're not to be partakers with them. And so as we walk in love, the challenge is, well, how, how, how do we love those around us? Because we all, I'm assuming, I certainly do, we all come into contact regularly with people that are very far away from the Lord. And we're told here to, that we're not to partake with them. We're not supposed to live the way they live. We're not supposed to value the things that they value. This is all uh, a preposition in here that we're, we're not supposed to do the things they do, value the things they value, or be deceived. But we're still supposed to love them and walk in love. The only way we can do that is if we have the Holy Spirit of God guiding us and showing us how to do this. And when we do, God gets all the credit. Verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he says, verse 14, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So the second thing we're told to do, the way to to walk, is walk in light. So we're to walk in love. This word love, by the way, earlier in the chapter, this walking in love, there's three, we know this perhaps, there's three words in in Greek that really mean love. One is the love of of two, uh, you know, a bunch of guys watching the football game or a bunch of girls getting together, maybe going, to a ladies' retreat last week, and you just get together and you just love you. You're with your friends. You enjoy one another's company. It's your, it's your pal. It's your friend. Philadelphia is the love, the brotherly love that comes and sisterly love that comes from a relationship. That's great. Then there's eros, the erotic, sensual love between a man and a woman. But the love here that is is being referred to, and in, in when we're told to walk in love, is this agape love. This love that doesn't. Uh, it's patience. First Corinthians thirteen. It's kind. It doesn't keep track of ills, uh, of offenses. It doesn't boast. And it, it is a decision. It is a decision to be obedient when we, when we walk in love. And it is a challenge. And I, have, I, I confess, 29 years of believer, still very much learning this. And I'm so thankful that the Lord gave us this, this little, did you notice this in verse 10? Finding out. That's a, that's a continual process. That implies that this finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, sometimes it's trial, it's trial and error. Sometimes we imitate God better than other times. But we're still supposed to try. We're still, still, still supposed to walk in love, but recognizing that it's a process. Growth in the Lord is a process. And it's, it's just still strange to me that it is, it, we, we're, we're, find, we're finding out what, the, what is acceptable to the Lord, and at the same time, spiritually we're seated in the heavenly places. We're finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and yet we have the Lord living inside of us fully. And I think the process that we go through in this, in this life of ours, this pilgrim life of ours, this sanctification process, it's, it's a challenging process, it's a, but God's in charge of it. And our role is to be willing to let Him dig in to us and take opportunity to take him as his word. You can't walk in love with other people 
if you're not around other people, right? You don't sit around your house all by yourself. Say, I'm, I'm walking along, I love myself. It's a given that you love yourself. There's several places in the, in the world. We're gonna, when we see you know, how husbands are supposed to love wives here in a minute, we'll see that the, the proposition that you love yourself, it's a given. But when we're told to walk in love, the idea is you have to be in community in order to do that. You have to have meaningful relationships in order to do that. And I would say, because Jesus says, I forget where, one of the Gospels, Jesus says, what credit do you get if you just love those who are lovable? Even sinners do that. So the, the idea is that you know, when you come across someone in your life that's just completely unlovable, praise the Lord. Take that as an, as an opportunity to imitate God. Don't turn your back on that person. I know that's our first temptation. Don't, get with, don't form an alliance with someone. To, you know, it's the, the, the hate Todd club or the hate Joey club. or whoever. You know, It's not about that. It's about loving. And I know that that's a challenge, but that's what we're called to do. Love. Not easy all the time, but I don't think the Lord would have told us to do it if, uh, if he didn't want us to do it and hadn't made a way for us to do it. But we do, we're finding out what is acceptable. Verse 15, see then that you walk circumspectly. Now that word, that word is for circumference, looking around, speckly, spectacles. So circumspectly means literally, as you walk, look around, watch out, look around. Understand, but understand what the will of the Lord is. There it is again, this idea that this is a process. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Just a great picture. So we're to walk in love. The only way we can do that is if we're in community. We're to walk in light as children of the light. And, and I take that to mean that, uh, as he talks about, you know, shameful things which are done in secret, uh, I, you know, Catherine and I have made a, a determination that we want to the greatest degree possible, we want our home to be open to you all. And so we have people over, we have a home group that meet, and we're so glad to do it. And some people say, well, it's really nice of you to do it. No, 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 don't, don't be mistaken. We're doing it because we, we, wanna, we, we want people to be in our lives that can speak into our lives and that can help us through these hard places so that we don't have a tendency to do these secret things that are shameful, which is a tendency, which is a temptation. I love the story of David and, and, and Bathsheba for weird, a weird reason, because the Lord gave me a, a, a something a years ago. You know, da, you know the story. David is on the roof of his house. I think it's Second Samuel 11, and he sees Bathsheba bathing. And and it could the story could have ended right there. He could have said, "Whoops, sorry, Bathsheba, I didn't." Ooh, ooh. But he didn't do that, and he just he just he gets in, he goes all in, and he he's warned. No, she's married. You can't have her. He takes her anyway. He gets her pregnant. Oh, he gets her husband. To come back off the battlefield. Uriah, an honorable man, tries to bribe him. And so you can see this cascading snowball going. And he's the king. And he eventually he tells Joab, look, retreat, put him in a fierce battle, retreat from him. And that's what he does. And Joab, I mean, Joab does that, and Uriah is killed. And so we see this progression of David's life. He's, he starts with an innocent look, and uh, we won't talk about why he wasn't on the battlefield with his troops, but nonetheless, and, and it goes up to he's a murderer now. And he's got an illegitimate child on the way. 
And what a, what a train wreck of a story that is. And when Nathan comes to him in the next chapter, it's really interesting. Because you would think of all the things, what, what would God be fired up about in that story? Well, you, 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 you had sex outside of marriage. You, you adultered with another man's wife and with your wife, David. You were married at the time. You, you lied to him. You got him drunk. You tried to bribe him, and then you murdered him. I'm mad at all those things. If I was God, I'd be mad at all those things. That's not what Nathan, Nathan says. Nathan says to David, because by your actions, you have caused, given the opportunity for the enemies of God to blaspheme, the child born to you is going to die. So how we live our lives really, really counts. People were watching David live. People are watching us live. Can we say that we're a Christian and then go and, and feel like we have a license to let the wheels come off the train when we're not in the church building. We'll just live in our four corners of our house just however we please. We won't give any thought to what the Lord's asked us to do. That's for Sunday morning. Tuesday afternoons about football or whatever. And I'm, you know, I, I, I can be tempted by that just like anybody else, but we're very much supposed to be Christians that we're, you know, seven day a week Christians, 24 seven Christians inside the, the walls of our house, Christians. And so I encourage you in that way. And I think that these next, uh, the next verse, 22, is my absolute favorite verse in the whole Bible, by the way. Um, <clears throat> Wives, submit to your own husbands. It's Catherine's favorite, too. But this section, this little section at the end of chapter 5, which is uh, about husbands and wives, you might think, well, what is that doing here, really? I mean, it's, it's, a, is it, it's almost in, incongruent. But it's, but it's not really, because I, I think that... Uh, you know, the marriage relationship is one that God gets a lot of, he covers a lot of ground in our hearts through the marriage relationship. Because it's a picture. It's a, it's a picture. I remember um, a, a man told me a story once about uh, he, he, was, uh, he, had, he had five siblings. He got saved. One by one, his, his siblings got saved. His mother got saved. But his father was just a, a kind of a crusty guy. Didn't want, to do, didn't want to get saved at all. Didn't want to respond to the gospel uh, at all. And he lived his whole life, years and years and years. Well, his father got sick, had cancer. Uh, about just weeks before his father passed away, the father calls this, this man who's telling me this story. And he says, my father calls me. He says, I'm ready to give my heart to the Lord. I'm done fighting. I don't have long left. I want to become a Christian. The son says, hallelujah, let me go get the preacher. The father says, no, no, no. Don't get the preacher. Get this guy, and he names somebody from the congregation. I want this guy, who was, you know, didn't have any office in the church whatsoever, no public recognition in the church, just a guy. And the son was curious about this. He said, why, why him? And the father said, well, I've been watching him live his life for the past 20 years. I watched how he responded when his wife died. I watched what he did when he lost his job. I watched how he raised his kids. I watched, I watched when he got, you know, and he, he just had this laundry list of things that he'd been watching and observing for a lifetime, for years and years. And so I will say to you in an encouraging way that, that, that not only are the, are the angels and the demons and the principalities and heavenly places watching us live our lives, and we are to testify somehow to them, but one another, we're, we're watching each other live our lives. And the, the world certainly is watching us live our lives. You know, Christians don't have a very good reputation in the world these days, particularly in America. We're judgmental. This is what the world would say. You're judgmental, closed-minded, hateful, et cetera, et cetera. And so how much, how what a beautiful picture it is when wives in 22 
are asked to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. Submitting to the Lord is easy. He's perfect. He's never made a mistake. In, in all eternity, he's never made one. How easy is it to submit? I wish I could say that as a husband, I had never made a mistake. I cannot say that. Unfortunately, Catherine is not asked, and you wives in this room are not asked to submit to your husbands because they're really good guys. Because we're not really good guys. But you submit as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. You see, the Lord has established um, the marriage relationship. It is the most amazing thing to think about. The marriage relationship, I mean, this is an institution that has been in existence and we're still doing it. We're still getting married. People still get married in much the same way as Adam and Eve got married. Adam, uh, the Lord brought Eve to Adam in the garden. But think about this. He brought her to him before the fall. I mean, this is an institution, this marriage institution that predates original sin. And so I, I think it's just very special to the Lord. It's funny because I, I uh, well, let me read a little bit further. 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Husbands, we don't get off the, we don't get off the, the hook. We don't get off the hook at all. We're supposed to do these things as, as Christ wants us to do, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, the man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And here's the kicker right here, 32. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You know, we were sitting at the dining room table a couple of years ago, and we have three sons. This is the, David's our youngest, and we have a 18 and a 17. And, uh, but we're sitting, and, and one of them said, you know, one of these hypothetical situations at the dinner table, uh, Dad, what would you do if we were all in a, in a life raft? And, and it, spilled out, it spilled over, and everybody, you know, all of us went in, and you could only save one of us. Who would you save? And I went, your mother. And all three of our boys were like, what? Her? What, what, aren't we cuter? Look, we got a lot more life left to live than she does. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you save your number one son? Micah said, of course. Jared's like, no, 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 you'd save the smartest one, Jared said, the second. And David, of course, was, no, he'd save the cutest one. And I said, no, 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 we, we can make more of you. <laughs> but I, I do think, you guys, that there, I mean, he says it here that he's talking about Christ in the church. This, this relationship between husband and wife where we're told we, we become one flesh, it's applicable with Christ in the church as well. We're part of his body. In a way, we're one flesh with him. And so we're out of time, I'm sorry to say, but I hope that uh, the Lord has given you something to think about here through these words.